said, welcome to the next uh, installment of the GES Colloquium. And I'll let Dylan take it away with the introduction for today's speaker. All right. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Jordan is a professor of agronomy and plant genetics at the University of Minnesota, St. Paul, where he studies agroecology and the implementation of diversified agriculture. He received an AB in biology from Harvard University in 1979, followed by a PhD in botany and genetics from Duke in 1986. Uh, he has been a professor at the University of Minnesota since 1994. In addition, he's a co-founder and co-director of the Forever Green Partnership, a multi-sector partnership working to advance the cause of continuous living cover on farmland in the Midwest. Uh, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Nicholas Jordan. Well, thank you very much for that nice introduction. And first of all, hello to a few people. Jennifer Kuzma, my close colleague in various things, Fred Gould, who I met in 1982 when a bunch of us uh, agroecology-minded graduate students at Duke uh, invited this character who had recently shown up at NC State to come over and chat with us. And Fred, I'm very glad you're here. Um, and I have appreciated our work over the years very much. And um, also, it is good to see Ramon in the mix, my colleague in, in working on various weed things. So uh, let me just jump right on in and try to abide by the guideline of talking for not too much more than half an hour so we can have some conversation. All right. Okay, then. So uh, let me take a minute to mention that um, much of what I'm going to say today is, in fact, the joint um, product of a very interesting group of people that I've worked with over the past three plus years in the cooperative governance project that um, that I'm going to be talking about. And so they are acknowledged um, in uh, in the section of the image that has all those bright yellow flowers. So my intention today is to talk about this project, first of all, by trying to share um, some aspects of the context and the motivation of the group that came together for the project. And I'll identify that group on the way and then outline what we were hoping to do in the project and how the project unfolded. I'm going to take a kind of, um, if you will, a sort of phenomenological approach. In other words, I'm not going to do a lot of analysis. I'm just going to give you an account of how it all unfolded. But I will then try to conclude with some reflections from my position as a, um, you know, a sort of working um, natural scientist, working in agriculture, attempting to walk the walk of response of an ideal called responsible innovation and scaling. So not a social scientist. Um, I was not doing this on a full-time basis by any means. We were trying to piece some things together and try to address some very difficult challenges um, following some principles of responsibility. And I'll try to reflect a little bit on how that has seemed to work out. So just a few minutes on context and motivations. So, um, sorry, I need to get rid of my floating meeting controls, which are somehow back. There we go. Um, 
So um, we in the, the group that came together around this project is motivated by a concept of agriculture that is being becoming known as continuous living cover. And so just so you know what this is, this is a concept of, in fact, covering farmland with productive living crops as much as possible. In other words, for as much of the time as possible and as over as much of the landscape as we can manage. This is a broad concept. There are quite a few different forms of agriculture, different forms of crops that can be employed as part of this idea of continuous living cover agriculture. And let's consider the sort of uh, rationale. So in most of Midwest agriculture, the agriculture of the Midwest being globally significant to the world's food system, of course, we have a situation where we have about four months of living cover very far from continuous living cover. And this is something that has become extremely pronounced in recent years. So if we look at the distribution of agricultural land use in this Iowa County in 1930, you can see that there was a mix of row crops and other kinds of things. And that presently we have almost all row crops. So this has had a bunch of consequences. So, um, First of all, there is systematic destruction of soil, uh, has, as has been recently revealed by remote sensing technologies to be more extensive than previously understood. All kinds of challenges with water. Um, these harmful algal blooms, a kind of new phenomenon in the fresh waters of the Midwest. Urban flooding, sometimes it's catastrophic in scale. All kinds of impacts on biodiversity. Uh, the case of the honeybee is well known. So the premise for our whole project is that expanding continuous vegetative cover from four months to many more months than that out here in the Midwest can enhance farm production and all kind of provide all kinds of other benefits, particularly under the duress of climate change. Further, and this is the critical premise, um, new and better crops are needed to enable this expansion. The point being that public subsidies in lieu of production um, appear um, to be um, an impossible means of scaling continuous living cover agriculture. In other words, the cost of subsidizing non-productive farm land use, uh, productive in terms of agricultural commodities at the necessary scale is enormous and prohibitive. So let me introduce um, who the project organizers are. The, the, the project was originated by a group called Forever Green that I co-direct along with a colleague. This is a big sprawling network of folks across the Midwest, many universities, many NGOs, many private sector partners, many government partners. We have a total research budget of about $100 million. Um, so it, or, um, roughly $20 million a year that we are applying to come up with this whole portfolio of new crops, winter annuals, in other words, crops that survive the winter uh, and flower and, and, and bear uh, 
their fruit in the spring, perennial crops. And uh, the basic idea is that these crops provide things that society needs and wants, providing new economic opportunities that enable essentially a financing of ecosystem services uh, that are provided by continuous living cover, which are many, as I've implied. So the Forever Green portfolio is uh, at this point roughly 16 different crops or groups of crops, some perennials that are non-woody, some woody perennials, some winter annual crops, some others. And um, so uh, there is a diligent R&D effort spanning genomics to food science applied to almost all of these crops with that large research budget that we have. Um, the point being that when you are developing new crops, um, it is necessary to develop them comprehensively. Some of these crops are ancient crops that are being developed in new ways. That would be alfalfa, for example. Others like sylphium are novel and recent domesticates. And I should mention that the Forever Green project is not the University of Minnesota. It is a big network involving all kinds of folks, as I said, sprawling across the Midwest. So these crops need development. The problem is that societal investment in plant breeding is actually quite limited. So enter gene editing. Um, gene editing purportedly evolve, uh, steps around issues related to um, introducing foreign DNA from one species to another. It purports to be precisely targeted to particular genes and to be have major advantages in terms of how quickly and cheaply it can proceed. And the question marks are, uh, I meant to denote that there's some uh, contention about these, um, about these claims. So um, as I'm sure you're aware, all kinds of folks are getting involved in gene editing of crops. There's a whole cohort of young people who see a great deal of power in this technique, but are also aware of um, the fraught nature of this as a kind of next generation of uh, GMOs uh, in, in the space of crops. Um, the crop breeders and the geneticists to elaborate a little bit on why they like it. They see potential for essentially novel crops or previously very little bred, little improved crops being as, as one person put it in an article, catapulted into mainstream agriculture by this technique of gene editing. So an example from the Forever Green project is uh, this crop field pennycress. This is one of these winter hardy, so-called winter annual crops that we're developing. And this in fact has been gene edited by the group that's working on this crop. And uh, however, um, to my knowledge, those gene edited um, uh, forms of pennycress have not yet made their way into the um, the first wave of, of commercialization of this uh, crop. But this is an entirely novel crop that um, uh, was essentially um, the subject of very, very little, almost none, professional plant breeding before a sort of intensive exercise was developed by a group of collaborators um, per that, uh, that article in the lower right-hand corner. To say a bit more about why geneticists and crop breeders like gene editing, 
What they tell us is that these new crops, say these novel domesticates or crops like pentacris, need both a kind of general improvement involving classic plant breeding that is often applied to so-called polygenic traits that are affected by many genes and development of certain key traits that often have simpler genetics but are really critical to agronomic and commercial success for these crops. So they see the, the point being that they need to do both of those things. And so they want the ability to do conventional plant breeding, albeit informed by genomics, and also gene editing to achieve that crucial both and. They say, however, that um, there are a couple of critical uh, constraints. One is simply the understanding of the underlying sort of functional uh, genetics and genomics of these crops, and also some technical aspects of gene editing, which requires some sort of fiddly technique uh, for particular crops. And they caution that uh, there needs to be quite a bit of upfront investment that uh, to enable gene editing. Um, you can't just sort of dive into it um, de novo and uh, expect to achieve sort of instant results. And that need for upfront investment is a key issue that I will come back to. So the situation right now is that we have uh, a fair amount of gene editing underway. Um, you can see the general trend of that slide now somewhat dated from a publication of Jennifer's a few years back. So quite a few crops, quite a few traits, still not too much consensus on how this whole business of gene editing should be governed. And here I want to take a second and share a key figure from a publication last year by a group of folks that represent a number of environmental and science policy NGOs. And I want us to take a second to see what they said was necessary. Uh, if there is in fact to be a responsible governance of the applications of gene editing. So note at a high level, they're calling for equity and inclusion, transparency and access, both public and private management and governance. And um, they sort of further elaborate these with six principles that you see arrayed around that circle. We don't need to discuss those at the, this point, but there is a very important high level point that is being expressed here. What I believe these folks are saying here is that we, a consortium of, um, of um, internationally influential environmental and science policy NGOs are supportive of the application of gene editing in agriculture and the environment. Um, but that support is contingent on certain things. At a high level, the three principles you see of equity, transparency, public-private, etc. And so I'm just going to keep hiding those controls as they reappear. So what these folks are saying to us, I think, is that uh, there's a block of influential NGOs that support exploration, but it is contingent on doing it in a certain way. So that's a very significant statement, I think, in this whole 
uh, melodrama that we're talking about here today. So um, let's consider how we might go forward now. Um, the, the recap so far is that arguably we need continuous living cover in agriculture as a particular form of diversification in agriculture. Uh, that needs to be achieved by crops, not by having plants that don't produce commodities, providing continuous living cover. The economics of that does not appear to scale. Society needs protection against things that may go awry, uh, biophysically or socially, in terms of, say, lack of equity and inclusion. And society certainly does not need more of the indecisive gridlock that we have had around first-generation GMOs, which in my view is a very damaging uh, indecision about a very basic science policy question of how we go forward to advance crop development in the face of the challenges, the grand challenges of 21st century agriculture and everything it touches. So one way that we might think about going forward is to apply norms of so-called responsible innovation and scaling. So I'm, um, I'm borrowing from a well-known publication by Stilgo et al. on so-called responsible innovation, four principles of so-called responsible innovation. It's inclusivity, it's anticipatory nature, and it's reflexive and responsive nature. These actually map fairly closely to the, uh, how shall I put this, the gently put demands of that group of uh, NGOs that we just looked at. Another thing that we might think about is that we're interested in innovation, yes, when we speak of applying gene editing to these crops. We're also interested in scaling. We're also interested in the question of how do innovations break through to become actually, to actually achieve uh, influence and impact at scale in society. And so here we are influenced by a theory known as the multi-level perspective advanced by a Dutch scholar, uh, Frank Giels. And the basic, um, uh, the basic message of Giels's work, which is based on historical analysis of um, so-called sustainability transitions, particularly in energy, what Giels is telling us and colleagues are telling us is that their new innovations break through and have impact at scale when there is coordination or, co or coincidence between what we might call top-down impetus for scaling that in the agriculture space is coming from NGOs, like the very ones we were just talking about, regulators, investors, and so on, that are putting pressure on existing, um, existing systems. And so in our particular case, food companies are, are a main example of that. And so we have um, all these sort of niche innovators, breeders, agri-science firms, regenerative farmers, who are interested in advancing these CLC crops and um, what Giels will tell us is that it is only when there is a coincidence, a pressure between the top-down impetus for change and the bottom-up impetus for scaling, which comes from coming up basically with viable innovations, viable 
crops for CLC agriculture. That's what it takes. So we attempted to go forward with a project that in some way was a hybrid between uh, applying principles for responsible innovation and principles for driving the scaling of innovation. And so this hybrid is sometimes referred to in an emerging literature as responsible innovation and scaling. So let me now give you a quick account of what we did in the, um, um, as we went forward in the project. So um, we pulled together a multi-sector group that we felt was relevant because it included both top-down and bottom-up actors. We felt that it would be very important for there to be deliberation um, around this idea of applying um, gene editing to advance CLC crops. And we, um, because we felt that this group needed to come to some degree of shared understanding of what a shared goal was. And we also wanted this group to consider taking um, collective action together, essentially to coordinate their efforts to advance scaling. So here is a quick outline of how these initial deliberative stages of the project went forward. So we began with interviews with as many of the folks that we recruited to the project as we could, more on them in a minute, and also did a number of supplementary interviews midstream when we realized we needed more perspectives. We held several day and a half long deliberative workshops we had a sort of capstone workshop that was briefer last year and did, did some sort of exit interviews. Um, but I do want to emphasize this is an ongoing project. So let me just quickly buzz through an account of what happened as we went forward along that, um, that flow of the project. So we had um, interviews with 28 folks, which um, were more or less the folks that then convened for the first deliberative workshop. So um, you can get a sense of, of who those persons were from the, um, the, the distribution of participants there. The workshop, the interviews were intended to understand how folks were thinking about relevant issues. So what we found out was A, there was a general favorable inclination in this group around the idea of gene editing CLC crops. Um, there was interest to know more about exactly what were the merits of gene editing and what were the merits of CLC crops. And uh, there was a general feeling of not really knowing enough about either of these topics to be able to think very concretely about how a cooperative multi-sector cross-scale effort to govern the use of gene editing might even be organized. We came together for a deliberative workshop in June of 2019. And um, the things that got out on the table in those deliberations really addressed the things that people wanted to know more about as expressed in those initial interviews. So uh, again, the general merits of gene editing what's up with these CLC crops, pros and cons, um, and you know, what's the specific value proposition for applying gene editing to CLC crops? 
might there be collateral damage um, in, in terms of um, unjust impacts of the scaling of these crops with impacts on organic agriculture uh, emerging as a case in point? And um, exactly what degree of transparency and what mode of governments might possibly be effective in some uh, effort, some ongoing effort of cooperative governments? What, so what could that even look like? So uh, in the interim between the 29 workshop and the 2020 workshop, we did a, a Delphi process of sorts, which is um, you know, a, a sort of iterative consultation with informed persons to try to gain a sense of uh, shared understanding of some complex issue. And so we looked for criteria for applying gene editing. So, you know, essentially what was coming clear for folks, uh, you know, as they reflected and as they, uh, you know, in, in, in the aftermath of the 29 workshop, um, what might folks uh, be able to say would be important considerations for when it would be okay to apply gene editing for these crops. And also we queried ideas for um, concrete structures for the governance of such applications. We came back together again in um, 2020 for another workshop, um, a few fewer participants, but the same basic mix of folks. Uh, what we did in this uh, workshop was to have a sort of a deep dive into Let's take a look at two particular CLC crops that we thought were worthy of, um, of, a, of, a, of a deep and, and discussion of, first of all, the value proposition of these crops and what we might anticipate for how that value would or would not be delivered if we were to apply gene editing to improve these crops or not to apply gene editing. So this was an effort in, in essence to be anticipatory, which is that, uh, of course, one of the pillars of responsible innovation. We also deliver, deliberated a number of scenarios for implementation of cooperative governance that had emerged from the Delphi. And I thought it would be interesting to take a look at these. So five options for cooperative governance emerged from the Delphi, uh, three of them were not supported in the deliberations of the 2020 workshop, but a couple of them emerged as having some support. And the main way that they differ is that in so-called stakeholder governance, it is the actual crop developer that uh, goes forward to decide or not, uh, to decide to proceed to release a gene edited crop or not. And, um, so, you know, in some sense, the stakeholder governance is advisory, although uh, we should be aware that these stakeholders could actively oppose the release of a crop, which in the case of internationally powerful NGOs could be significant. The other um, form of governance that emerged was so-called community governance and note the key phrase, I should have highlighted it, consensus or majority decision crop release. So the power to um, release the crop um, sits in a very different place in this case. So these two ideas uh, emerged, uh, but from the 2020 deliberations as uh, at least worth further discussion, but uh, neither of them had uh, a clear majority of support.
So as I mentioned, we carried out supplementary interviews because we realized that um, crop readers actively involved in developing continuous living cover crops were underrepresented in the project and uh, persons that had, you know, sort of professional uh, credentials um, as scientific practitioners of agroecology were also underrepresented. So we interviewed them because we felt they were critical stakeholder um, groups. And so uh, just to summarize what we found out, it wasn't actually too terribly different from what we found out from the interviews with the participants as a whole. But uh, suffice to say that the breeders and the agroecologists were both persuaded that applying gene editing to CLC crops was a major opportunity to diversify agriculture in a potentially very significant way. Uh, they were concerned about the potential for GMO gridlock rising up and enveloping this emerging biotechnology of gene editing. Uh, they were concerned that certain forms of governance, specifically certain regulatory approaches, would be um, would effectively uh, prevent these applications. They were worried about um, the lack of public acceptance of these crops. Uh, they were concerned about certain collateral damage that can arise, you know, with any uh, effort to diversify agriculture. Uh, for example. Um, uh, complex impacts on pest dynamics in agroecosystems. They were concerned about unjust distributions of benefits and risks of various sorts. Again, the particular question of uh, unfair impacts on organic crops arose. So just to uh, sort of wind up my very swift account of what we did and what happened, so we had one final briefer sort of capstoning workshop with um, somewhat fewer people in 2021. It was just a couple hours rather than a day and a half. And also some post workshop interviews that were uh, so the workshop was essentially retrospective and asking where are we from here. And uh, we then carried out uh, post workshop interviews in 2021 which were essentially a, okay, we've gotten, we've spent a fair amount of time in this effort. Where are we at and what do you think? And we were able to sit for interviews with 13 of the 19 folks that participated. And to quickly summarize, um, a modest majority, let's call it 60% or so, saw clear merit in gene editing these crops. Um, they were persuaded that in order to scale the environmental benefits of continuous living cover, we had crop. Um, we felt they felt that this was a uh, a way that um, capital might be attracted to this general project of diversifying agriculture, and they also felt pragmatically that um, at least some of them felt that look. The grand challenges uh, that are facing agriculture, the need for to improve the environmental performance of agriculture is so great that we had better at least take a, a cautious look at these technologies. And that's really quite similar to the view of those um, those NGOs that I, I showed you that uh, framework that they had uh, published an article on last year, sort of putting their uh, 
making their views known on this. There was some hesitancy. Some folks were actually unpersuaded about the basic premise that, well, I shouldn't laugh, that agriculture needs new crops. Um, there was concern that uh, these new crops, even if they would be helpful, can't be scaled given the difficulty of diversification in general in agriculture. And they particularly felt that new test cases were needed. Um, at this point, our project has morphed somewhat, and we are now trying to uh, bring responsible and scaling innovation that encompasses gene editing, but is not restricted to it, into a project around scaling plant protein from something that for present purposes we'll call regenerative climate smart agriculture. The premise here is that, of course, there's a great deal of interest in what sometimes some folks call a, um, a, a protein transformation. Uh, in other words, a shift to greater reliance on plant protein in human diet globally. And um, the, there's also a great deal of interest in scaling up so-called regenerative agriculture, which mainly means improving and taking better care of soil. And the idea is that these two interests can, in fact, support each other. That's the premise of this. And there was quite a bit of interest um, among uh, the participants um, in this final workshop in uh, this idea and, and a recognition that this could be something that would sort of be a vehicle for further piloting of responsible innovation and scaling. And um, a good example is that we have this very interesting technology of making um, protein concentration concentrates from perennial grasses. And um, this, these technologies are now being commercialized in Europe and um, they're very interesting because they provide a way that perennial grasses, which are a form of continuous living cover agriculture par excellence, could be part of this so-called protein transformation um, because of these technologies that would let people directly eat perennial grasses, something we haven't really figured out how to do otherwise. So uh, this is all pretty interesting uh, as a vehicle to go forward. And that's what we're, what we're working on now. Um, but what I want to leave as an important takeaway from our work so far is really expressed again by this statement from these um, environmental and science policy NGOs. Um, what they said, uh, to, to remind you, is that we are supportive of exploring this technology conditional on using responsible innovation and scaling. That's essentially what they say in their article. And so what they don't say, but uh, I think they mean, frankly, is that if these technologies go forward without responsible innovation and scaling, they quite possibly will not support and may vehemently oppose. And we know that NGO opposition to the first generation of GMO crops has been very significant for good or for ill, depending on your point of view. But the point being that these groups and other groups that uh, I think basically have the same feeling that let's explore, but conditionally, responsibly, uh, I would suggest that they have considerable power in this situation. And so if gene editing of crops in general, and certainly for CLC crops is to go forward, responsible innovation scaling appears really important.
Okay, I'm going to attempt to um, walk the walk of responsible innovation and scaling by being a bit reflexive. In other words, reflecting um, critically, but constructively, I hope, on what we've done so far. And then, and then I'll be done. We can have some conversation. So first of all, for rank and file working agricultural scientists, responsible innovation and scaling is pretty darn much terra incognita. We are not used to uh, the inclusivity, the anticipatory activities, the other pillars of uh, responsible innovation and scaling. And so, uh, you know, these require us to spend time in activities that are decidedly outside the, you know, the sort of ordinary uh, working culture of agricultural science. Our project itself was somewhat challenged by pluralism and the clash of views, contrasting views. Um, this was observed um, by uh, several of the collaborators in the project that uh, served essentially as evaluators and providers of perspective. They pointed out that there certainly, our group that we pulled together was definitely pluralistic, meaning that it held a range of views about um, about everything that the project addressed, and that there wasn't a lot of um, time for um, you know what we might call clash. In other words, the um, the um, you know, debate between these different viewpoints in the course of deliberation. This was somewhat swept under the rug. They suggested to us, if only because of the lack of time. That relates to another aspect of lack of time, the lack of organizing resources. So um, something that's a key premise for me is that a project like this requires a lot of one-on-one -on -one discussions with the participants. With a network of 30 plus participants, we were really challenged to do that. We did have one-on-one -on -one discussions at the initiation of the project and a little bit in midstream but um, as a way of working through that pluralism, the one-on-one -on -one discussion is a fundamental tool in my book, and we didn't have enough resources for that. There were certainly missing actors. So um, consumer packaged goods firms, so the, the firms that are dominant players in our food system, were minimally represented uh, in this project, and yet very important to the acceptance or not of these crops, um, CLC crops, if um, uh, improved by gene editing. And then just finally to, to mention again, that this is this project is a work in progress. And I've given you a sense of, of how we are trying to evolve into and, and reorganize uh, to continue this effort of would-be responsible innovation and scaling. So I am going to stop my screen share and uh, I look forward to some conversation. That was really great. Thank you so much. Um, we actually already have several um, people who've put questions in the chat. So I'll start by calling on them. But if you um, have questions for Nick, could you please raise your hand or add to the chat? Um, 
prefer if you'd be happy enough to raise your hand, um, but if you don't want to talk, add it to the chat. Um, I'll start with Rebecca Brown first, and then we'll go to Eli. Rebecca, would you like to ask your question directly? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Um, yes, I was going to ask if, uh, since you mentioned you need a lot more um, CLCs that are usable for feeds, foods, and fuels, um, what, um, how much of the project has been diverted to like food science product development and consumer acceptance? I'm working with food science and I know one of the biggest hurdles we have is the ability to kind of overcome the education aspect of GM perceptions. Um, and I was, I guess that's kind of a three part question at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a, a ton of sense to me. So um, to be clear, uh, none of the crops in our portfolio of 16 has a gene edited version that we are, um, you know, attempting uh, in the near term to commercialize. And the only one of the crops that we have actually gene edited, we meaning the Forever Green Network, uh, is in fact field pantycress. And this is a crop that um, is, um, has been interestingly um, greatly modified by um, genomics. Um, informed conventional plant breeding uh, so that it does have a uh, fatty acid profile in its oils. It's very similar to canola, whereas previously it was very rich in various toxic um, substances in the oil. So um, genome, conventional genomically uh, guided plant breeding has been very successful in that sense. But there are some key agronomic traits that we have gene edited as well, but those are not yet um, to my knowledge, some of this is confidential business information. Uh, to, to my knowledge, uh, these are not being commercialized. So, so I entirely take your point of the question, we're not at that stage. We're doing lots of food science research, but it's not on gene edited um, crops at this point. Thank you. Eli, would you like to ask your, uh, I think you actually had a couple of questions, so. Uh, I'll ask my second question, maybe leave the other one for Paul, who probably knows more about it anyway. Um, so I was struck kind of where you ended, you alluded to this interaction with uh, NGOs um, where uh, they said they're on the fence about supporting uh, gene edited crops. Uh, and they alluded to the history of other types of engineered crops and, um, and that it's a, you know, that this turning point. Um, my question is, uh, is the focus on gene editing um, primarily about the marketing or the chance for a different perception of engineering um, or is it grounded in the type of things the technology can do? Mm. Well, thank you for for your question. Um, so, first of all, I don't know that the the uh, NGOs are exactly on the fence. I think they are saying we don't know enough yet to know whether if we're on the fence or on one side or another. It really is a matter of um, we need to explore, but using the principles they articulated in their article, which amount to responsible innovation and scaling. And um, 
it was actually me that was referring to the previous um, problems that have occurred uh, due to uh, a powerful and organized opposition, including NGOs, to uh, the first generation GMOs, not them, just to be to be clear on who's saying what. Um, now, your question uh, was a bit unclear to me. I'm sorry for my denseness. Um, you were asking, uh, are the concerns about uh, sort of marketing, consumer acceptance, or about, you know, perhaps uh, unintended impacts elsewhere in the genome of the technology, that sort of thing? I'm sorry, but was that what you were getting at? Um, I think my, my, my question is, um, is the choice to say gene editing is uniquely able to diversify all of these crops about what gene editing can do as a technology, or is it about the chance to have a fresh start in terms of the perception of gene editing, especially in alternative agriculture or a perception of biotechnology in agriculture? Mm, mm, thank you. Um, yeah, interesting question. Uh, I, I think the enthusiasm is on, on grounds of the technical merits of gene editing. So the ability to accomplish that both and that our crop breeders repeatedly pointed to. Um, so both um, general improvement and highly targeted specific improvements. They say we need both ASAP. So the, I, I think that's the fundamental reason for the enthusiasm. Um, I would agree, however, uh, that this could indeed be the opportunity for a sort of a fresh start. Um, and and I, I, I would say actually that the willingness of um of ngos of the sort that wrote that article to participate in this project um and and other groups in this um in our our project that are affiliated with quote unquote sustainable agriculture indicates the willingness uh you know or the possibility that you pointed to in the second part of your question and um, one of the things that I think is interesting about our project is that, uh, uh, you know, many accounts of the, the current, as in 2022, state of play in this whole discussion of gene editing really point to the polarization that exists already, that there is already um, or, you know, substantial skepticism um, among uh, in the quote unquote sustainable agriculture camp about these technologies. Whereas our project does show a willingness to engage in deliberation about these technologies in um, among folks with those sustainable agriculture affiliations. So I hope that somewhat responds to your question. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, let's go to Ramon and then um, after that, I'll see if Paul would like to ask that original question. So Ramon. Hi, Nick. Thanks a lot. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, and I would like to have your opinion on, on um, this idea that starting all these conversations from the technique that is used rather than the product of what that technique is allowing you to accomplish. Uh, and as you indicated, 
we can use traditional breeding or now genomics informed breeding and make major changes in those species to the point that they're going to behave very differently in nature, right? Or, or have very different properties with a wide range of, of ecological aspects. We, for example, here we're, we're breeding cereal right with dramatically increased allelopathic activity uh, mm. to control weeds, right? Just using traditional selection, but then that could affect biodiversity during the winter by not allowing a lot of other species. Um, but because it's a conventional non-biotech-based uh, uh, technique, we're not regulated and no one is really concerned about it. So shouldn't we kind of bring in or try to, to insist that this conversation should focus a lot more on the consequences or, or the final product? rather than the technique that is used to generate that product. Yeah, um, I think I agree with your point, Ramon. Um, I would also say that the debate, um, if you look at what this, um, this group of NGOs that got together and came up with the, the that framework that they articulated. If you look at what they are saying, they are, I think, not all that concerned. I think they're basically, um, their view is aligned with what you are pointing to and calling for, Ramon. Their view is that we need to consider um, the nature and implication and effects of um, crops that are produced uh, with gene editing, but it's not principally um, what might be attributes of these crops that came from the gene editing technique. Rather, it's how will the resultant products function in society. So we know that all innovations that scale have a mix of impacts, their winners and losers, etc. And so they are calling for the, uh, the examination of the suite of biophysical and social outcomes from uh, these crops if they were to be scaled. That's what they're asking us to look at. Um, and so I, I think that the debate has evolved uh, away from, um, you know, the concern about process to the concern about products and their impacts that you are pointing to. But they're not requiring the same explorations or studies for products or, or crops that are developed with, you know, quote unquote, uh, older technologies. There is well, this underlying I think, assumption. I think they, they, they do want that, Ramon. I think they do want that. They, they want responsible innovation to be applied to the work of colleges, land-grant colleges of agriculture generally, you know, for just to speak of the U.S. system, which wouldn't be the worst idea in my humble opinion. Thanks a lot, Nick. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm.
<clears throat> excuse me. Okay. Um, Paul, would you like to ask that original question that was in the chat? Yeah, sure. Eli asked a great question. I kind of want to expand on it as well. Um, Eli's question was, you know, with winter annuals that are treated as a harvested crop rather than just a cover, how do you optimize their planting and harvesting times with summer annuals? And that's a critical issue is if a farmer is going to adopt a cover crop, it needs to fit in their primary cash crop uh, planting cycles. And that's certainly an issue we've experienced down here in North Carolina is identifying opportunities for a farmer to not only just have something that's going to benefit their soil, but it's going to result in an income for them as well. Um, so I was wondering if you have some stories to tell on, you know, you mentioned Pennycrest. I know the company Covercrest has made some headway with getting that crop introduced as a cash mm -hmm. crop as opposed to only a cover crop. Do you have other examples of what it takes to get one of these cover crops commercialized? Now, I know there's been some work here at NC State looking at Cameline, Carinata. Uh, I'm working with David Suchoff and trying to find ways to get uh, industrial hemp to take off where it's more of a rotation crop, but finding ways to get these to add benefits to a farms and also result in the formation of an industry uh, is kind of critical. I'm just curious if you had any stories. Yeah, great question. And I'd be delighted to talk about that a little bit. So um, first of all, um, very much appreciate your point that uh, Integration of continuous living cover crops into existing cropping systems is um, is a challenge. It makes it makes farm management more complicated and in some in some ways more risk prone. And um, so, uh, an important part of the mo of the Forever Green project is to. Uh, is to organize clusters of farmers that are trying out these um, more diversified management systems on farm. And on the one hand, providing real world experience to evaluate economic and economic outcomes. And on the other hand, um, um, bringing farmer ingenuity to bear on, on making those systems work out. However, breeding is also relevant. So here in the upper Midwest, we have a, a pretty interesting system um, that introduces winter camelina and other of these winter hardy um, crops and also cool season uh, spring crops into corn soybean systems. And a key part of it is that the winter camelina is um, followed by soybean. And our breeders, our conventional breeders, mind you, at this point, have um, have recently um, found some um, some lines of winter camelina that are about two weeks earlier, and this allows double cropping as opposed to relay cropping, which, without getting into the agronomy, is simpler and and less risky. So the point being that um, figuring out uh, how, in fact, there are viable ways to integrate the um, uh, these CLC crops into existing systems, it, and and you know, uh, not just on a farm or two, uh, not just on one research farm or another, but understanding that we need to try this over a range of soils and geographies and so on is really important. It's also really important to motivate 
uh, supply chain and value chain players downstream from farms to invest themselves. So the CPGs of the world um, need to make internal R&D investments to actually bring these crops into their product lines. They're not going to do that until they are convinced that farmers will actually grow them at scale. So we feel that uh, establishing the, these uh, on-farm um, piloting clusters is, is really critical to mobilizing the whole commercialization and scaling process. And um, I hope we can finish these questions really soon because I have to get back to my frigging USDA Climate Smart Commodity Pilot uh, Partnership um, proposal, which is due on April 8, and uh, which is a fantastic opportunity to advance that very piloting, as I'm sure many on this call are aware. And I, I was actually kidding about ending the call, but um, we are we are trying to tap into that wonderful new source of funds to advance these more complex and diversified systems. Okay, well, um, it actually is one o'clock, so it is time to end the hour. Thank you.